Thank you so much for being part of Parkside Green's Bible study. Artists are famous for their skillful use of contrast, right? Light and dark or opposite hues of the color wheel or varieties of texture and size. They're considered to be the golden rule for artistic creation. Authors also are famous for their expert use of contrast. We think of the the brilliant opening line of Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times, it was the, the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness, it was the epic of belief, it was the epic of incredulity, it was the season of light, it was the season of darkness, it was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. We had everything before us and we had nothing before us. It's brilliant, right? Well, long before Renaissance painters and literary giants employed contrast, Jesus Christ, the master teacher, used contrast to instruct his disciples. And in this week's passage, Luke 6, 37 to 710, we will explore a study in contrasts, a study in contrast organized around three headings. First, we'll see do's and don'ts, chapter 6, verses 37 to 42. Secondly, they'll be seen and unseen, chapter 6, verses 43 to 49. And then thirdly, insider and outsider, chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. So we begin with do's and don'ts from chapter 6, verses 37 to 42. You'll remember from last week that Jesus had begun to teach his disciples about God's surprising kingdom, starting in chapter 6, verse 20. And in this week's passage, Jesus is going to continue to teach his disciples, his followers, what life in his kingdom should look like. And as I count them, at least, I see four do's and four don'ts right here for us. The do's. Do forgive. Do give generously. Do be like your teacher, Jesus, and do take the log out of your own eye. Don't judge. Don't condemn. Don't try to be above your teacher, Jesus, and don't focus on tiny specks in other people's eyes. So, if we want to live the way Jesus teaches us to, it starts with not judging, right? Judge not, and you will not be judged. I read an author who said something about judging that most of us maybe don't admit aloud, but maybe rings a bell of familiarity. The author said, few activities in life rival the thrill of passing judgment on another human being. I don't believe I can go a day on God's green earth without in some way indulging in this forbidden art. No matter what I've done or how bad I am, I can always comfort myself by finding someone else out there who is worse than I am. <laughs> but Jesus, of course, tells his followers to judge not, right? Now, we don't want to misunderstand Jesus' teaching here. He is not saying that we can never make moral judgments in the sense of distinguishing right from wrong. In John 7, 24, when some Jewish leaders were not reasoning rightly about the Sabbath, Jesus told them, quote, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. 
judge with right judgment. So there is a proper way for Jesus' followers to judge rightly in the sense of exercising moral discernment. All right, we need to correctly evaluate ideas and behavior, but Jesus here strictly forbids his followers from a condemning type of judgment. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. It's never our place to condemn other people. God's the only one qualified to pass condemning judgment on anyone. So rather than judging or condemning others, I am called as Jesus' follower to forgive, and I will be forgiven. Right? Later in, in Luke 17, 4, Jesus will tell his disciples, if my brother or sister sins against me seven times in the day and turns seven times, saying, I repent, I must forgive them. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. And also we're to give, and it will be given to us. We're, we're supposed to go beyond just refraining from judging and condemning, and actually to actively do good to others, to give to them. And as we give, Jesus says the result is it will be given to us. And the picture he gives us here seems to be one of abundance. Not a meager amount, but a good measure, he says. So much that when it's, it's pressed down, it fills the whole container. And when the container is shaken, right, the contents settle, and we can fill the container even more fully. And, and there'll be a rounded heap on the top that's running over. And that's what Jesus says will be put into our lap. With, with the measure we use, it will be measured back to us. Not necessarily materially or in this life, but certainly in God's kingdom. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9.6 about the collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem, whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So don't judge or condemn. Do forgive and give generously. These are ways that Jesus' fully trained disciples, both then and now, can be like our teacher. Jesus seemed to never stop giving and forgiving, right? And so disciples of Jesus should never try to be above our teacher, which is totally impossible anyway. <laughs> it's the height of presumption, right, to think that we could be above our master teacher. We do not want to be the blind leading the blind so that we end up both falling into a pit. Right? In areas where we're blind, we, we may lead others to a bad place, into a pit. We have to see clearly if we are to lead others properly in God's kingdom. But so often we are blind to our own faults while still judging others, and it's probably why Jesus warns us against seeing the speck that's in our brother eye, but not noticing the log that's in our own eye. <laughs> it's so easy to find fault in others while remaining blind to our own failings. When Jesus' followers fall prey to this temptation, it is a real turnoff, right? For decades, polls have shown, been following them, they show that the most negative perceptions of Christians are that we're judgmental, and hypocritical. Now again, there is a proper place for Christians to use moral discernment, and other people may not always like that or agree with that, 
But what Jesus is saying here is that self-beam removal must come before other speck removal. Imagine an ophthalmologist with, with big blinding cataracts who tried to perform delicate eye surgery with minor impediments in a patient. We tell the doctor to take care of his or her own issues before worrying about others' little problems, right? But too often we are like that doctor, right? Well, I got it here, I can see that speck. Well, doctor, you, no, 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 let me, give me the instrument to your nurse, right? Most of us have that tendency to notice and even search for actively small faults in others while excusing or overlooking huge faults in ourselves. We, we need to start with the big plank that's in our own eye before we even think about helping to take the specks out of others' eyes. It's not that we're passive about other sins or we don't care about them. We do because we care about for them. But Jesus tells us, begin with our own. You know, we don't want to be hypocrites, do we? So we need to be self-critical before we are other critical. I first need to take that huge log out of my own eye so that I will see clearly to take the speck out of my brother or sister's eye. That's how relationships are supposed to be among God's people, right? Among Jesus' followers. I, I need to start with my own issues, and there are plenty of them. I, I just had one exposed earlier this week, a couple days ago, where it's just way too critical of someone else and not critical enough of myself. So as a guy who lives in a house with lots of glass, right, I want to avoid throwing stones at others. Lord, help me by your Spirit. Jesus' contrasts are so powerful, aren't they? It's true of the do's and don'ts, and it's also true of Jesus' contrast between what is seen and what is unseen in verses 43 to 49. Unlike God, we cannot see into a person's heart, right? And that's why in 1 Samuel 16, the godly prophet Samuel wrongly thought that tall, handsome Eliab was the Lord's anointed, when God's choice was David, right? A man after God's own heart. <laughs> but we can see people's actions and their words, which over time, in a variety of situations, reflect their unseen hearts. As Jesus puts it, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, right? What is unseen, the heart, produces something we can see, actions and words. Jesus illustrates from the world of trees. Right? Good trees don't bear bad, inedible fruit. And bad trees don't bear good, healthy fruit. It just doesn't happen. See, trees are known by their fruit. If, if you see figs, you know it's a fig tree, not a thorn bush. And if you see grapes, you know you're dealing with a grapevine and not a bramble bush. Same with people, right? Over time, in a variety of situations, people's visible actions reflect their otherwise invisible hearts. The seen reveals the unseen. And the same is true with our words. As Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, our mouth speaks. The ESV Study Bible notes that the true nature of people's hearts can often be seen, 
when they speak off the cuff with, without reflection. Right? We can pretend for a while, but eventually our words will reveal what's in our hearts. The unseen heart inevitably determines the fruit seen in our lives and in our words. So as I look at the fruit of my life, as you look at the fruit of your life, what does it say about us? But people's words and people's actions don't always match up perfectly, do they? It's all too possible to call Jesus Lord, Lord, but not do what he tells us. As Jesus says, elsewhere a person can honor him with their lips, but their heart is far from him. So when we claim allegiance to Jesus as Lord, it should show in our actions. True followers don't just hear Jesus' words, right? they actually live out his words. Jesus has been giving his disciples really meaty teaching right? ever since verse 20. If you've got a, a red-letter Bible, it's been all red letters, all words of Jesus for a big block of Luke chapter 6. And Jesus is going to wrap up this little section of teaching with one more study in contrast. Here it goes. Everyone who hears Jesus' word and does them is like a person building a house who, who dug deep and they laid the foundation on the rock. All right, it's hard to dig through the sand and get down to the rock, and so some people maybe skip that crucial step. But when a flood arises and streams break against that house, a house that has been well built on an immovable, though unseen, foundation does not get shaken. The floods of life show whether there is an unseen foundation there or not. And again, the solid rock, the foundation for life, is not just hearing Jesus' word, but doing them. Right? And then we have the study in contrast. The one who hears Jesus' word and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground with, without a foundation. You, you can see it now, but you can't see it now, I should say, because the house is on top of it, right? But this whole structure is sitting there on unstable sand. And it might look good as long as the weather's good, but there's no unseen solid foundation. And that becomes sadly apparent when the storms and the streams break against it and immediately it falls and the ruin of that house is great. <laughs> I mean, it's a dramatic ending Jesus gives us, isn't it? The whole house kind of crashing in. That's his picture for a person who hears Jesus' words and does not do them. So the contrast couldn't be more stark, right? One house isn't even shaken and one house completely collapses. As Jesus' brother James says, we must be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. God's word here, I think, can bring us under a healthy conviction. But I want you to remember this, brothers and sisters. If we have put our trust in Jesus and we are following him, when we mess up and fall short, as we will, our Heavenly Father is merciful, as we read at the end of last week. When we sin and repent, God's grace abounds to us. 
So we have contrast between do's and don'ts, contrast between the seen and the unseen, and finally, contrast between insiders and an outsider. After Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now we know from earlier in Luke's gospel that Capernaum had become Jesus' kind of like home away from home after the people of Nazareth had basically tried to kill him. <laughs> so already in Capernaum, uh, which was kind of like his base of operations, Jesus had cast out demons, he'd healed the sick, he taught in the synagogue. And now Luke tells us that in Capernaum there was a centurion a Roman official in charge of a century or approximately a hundred troops, sometimes fewer. The scholars tell us that centurions were like the backbone of the Roman army. They were in charge of making sure discipline was followed. And this particular centurion had a highly valued servant who was sick and actually at the point of death. When the centurion heard about Jesus, probably his past healings there in Capernaum he had done, he sent Jewish elders to ask Jesus to come and heal his dear servant. Well, a Roman officer asking a, a traveling Jewish rabbi for help, <laughs> that's an unusual situation. And these Jewish officials then pleaded with Jesus earnestly, explaining how the centurion loved the nation of Israel and he built or perhaps funded their synagogue right there in Capernaum. He was a kind man, right, who had been good to the Jewish people. And so Jesus went along with them. But as he neared the house, the centurion sent friends who addressed Jesus respectfully as Lord and told him not to trouble himself because the centurion wasn't even worthy to have Jesus come under his roof. Now the centurion was likely a Gentile, maybe with unclean things or non-kosher food uh, there in his home. And earlier, this humble centurion had not presumed to come to Jesus. He, he believed all Jesus had to do was just to say the word and his servant would be healed. The centurion knew all about having authority to command those under him, and, and they would obey, right? He'd give the word, and man, it would happen. And he believed Jesus had that authority to order healing, and it would happen. See, Jesus, he thought, could command sickness to go away, and it happened. No physical proximity, no physical touch even required here. And as far as we know, the centurion never met Jesus in person, but, but he knew enough about Jesus to put unqualified faith in him. In response, Jesus marveled and he turned and he, he told the crowd that was following him that not even in Israel he, had he found such faith as this. The centurion was an outsider to Israel, but he had more faith than the insiders. Again, a study in contrast. There, there was faith in Israel, mind you. Many Jewish followers of Jesus at this time but this outsider's faith was even greater. And sure enough, when the centurion's friends returned to his home, they found the servant who had been at the point of death totally well. Jesus could perform even long-distance healings, right? Just say the word. 
Well, as always, there are many possible applications, and I think several are prompted by your study questions as you work through those questions yourself. But as we wrap things up, just consider these four possibilities. Number one, don't judge or condemn other people. Not even in your mind, right? Instead, forgive and give generously to others. Don't judge or condemn other people, even in your thoughts. Instead, forgive and give generously to others. And certainly that's easier said than done. Secondly, be self-critical, right? Beam removal before you are other critical. Tiny speck removal. Be self-critical. Get rid of that beam first before you're other critical and worry about someone's speck. Again, easier said than done. Lord, may you help us. Thirdly, take a look at the foundation of your life and the fruit of your life. Are you going beyond hearing Jesus' word to doing Jesus' word? Take a look at the foundation of your life. What's it built on? And the fruit of your life, what's it yielding? Are you going beyond just hearing Jesus' word to actually living it out, putting it into practice? Fourthly, if you are in Christ, you've trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can rest in your heavenly Father's mercy. Right? When you sin and repent, God's grace abounds to you. So if you're in Christ, as you fall short, rest in your heavenly Father's mercy. When you sin and then repent of that sin, God's grace abounds to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus, not only to establish your kingdom, but to teach us how to follow Jesus and how to relate to others. We want to be like our teacher. We want to not judge or condemn, but to forgive and give generously. We want to take the logs out of our own eyes before worrying about specks in other people's eyes. We want to go beyond hearing Jesus' words to living out Jesus' words. And we want to have great faith in Jesus, just like the centurion. But we know ourselves as all too often people of little faith and people of fluctuating obedience. So we ask you to change our hearts through the transformative work of your spirit and to produce good fruit in our lives. And when we fall short, Lord, we thank you that we can rest in your mercies that are new every morning and your grace that abounds to us through Jesus. Amen.